I'm Naira. I'm Ellie. I'm Nina. I'm Joanna. This is Politics Under the Microscope, where we explore issues that matter to you by connecting science, policy, and society. If you look through your closet right now, you'll likely see an array of colorful fabrics with different textures and different styles. We wear clothes every single day, touching these fabrics almost at all times. But what actually makes up and comprises these fabrics at the macromolecular level? We know each piece of clothing typically has a care label, which holds the washing and care instructions and the contents of the clothing. For example, the percentage of cotton, polyester, nylon, What if we told you that these materials have changed over the years? These materials can be broadly classified into one of two categories. One, natural fibers, and two, synthetic fibers. Materials such as cotton, wool, and silk are what we call natural fibers. Materials like polyester, rayon, and nylon are called synthetic or man-made fibers. Over the years, there has been a sizable and significant shift away from natural fibers and towards synthetic fibers. But what caused this shift, and what does it mean for the environment? What about our health? What about society? To answer these questions, we are joined today by Drs. Imran Islam and Preeti Arya from the New York Fashion Institute of Technology, or FIT for short, who specialize in textile research development and understand the macromolecular basis of fast fashion. The rise of fast fashion is complemented by a rise in synthetic fibers. Here's Dr. Arya, who gives us the backstory of the usage of natural fibers such as cotton, silk, and wool, and why and how this has switched to synthetic man-made fibers such as polyester, rayon, and nylon. So the fashion industry is, um, till the early 1920s, I would say it was uh, heavily influenced by natural fibers. But with the invention, with the innovation of man-made fibers, uh, all thanks to DuPont, we have now several petroleum-based polymers. The initial were the regenerated uh, cellulosics, which we can call them rayons. The different types of rayon, there are several different types of rayons or regenerated cellulosics. And then we had the petroleum-based polymers and because the petroleum lobbying was so strong that it kind of surpassed and in a way sabotaged the use of a lot of natural fibers so you don't see wool or silk in mainstream fashion other than being used by big brands but they were made to look bad and they were categorized as very pricey which isn't the case but because petroleum polymers were very cheap 99 cents a barrel for polyester you cannot compare that with some dollars when it comes to cotton or silk or wool or linen that was uh, that was difficult to compete and the lobbying was not strong for natural fibers so and brands had to make money so without revenue generation a business or a brand will not survive So people, primarily the fashion industry, um, went with polyester and nylons and different rayons, especially viscose rayon. Those were cheap. They looked like textiles. They felt like textiles in the past. And profit margins were extremely high. 
with uh, cheap brands. Unfortunately, like I don't know how you pronounce Shane, Shine, you will see the similar polymers being used, um, mostly rayons and polyester. Most of your fast fashion brands uses these polymers, whether they are man-made cellulosics or man-made petroleum-based. Um, so that said, um, when you are getting the, a cheap product and when you, are, you can have a very high profit margin in the name of textiles, why sell expensive textiles when you can sell man-made polymers? So that was the reason why so many, fa especially fast fashion brands, and which were not even fast fashion, they had to take that route too to compete with the fast fashion brands. Okay, so the financial advantage of using synthetic fibers is clear. But what steps of the supply chain make synthetic fibers more profitable? Dr. Islam weighs in here. So when you talk about the natural fiber, there are some, uh, you have to deal with some natural adversities, like weather, you know, you cannot control that. You know, you know, you know to grow them, you have to put nutrients, fertilizer, pesticide, that sort of thing. And, and the cycle is big, anywhere like six months to nine months, okay? You have to plan. On the other hand, for any petroleum-based man-made fiber, you can make everything in a lab. You know, you don't need like so many skill set. You know, one chemist is good enough with all these instruments and everything. Uh, but on the for natural fiber, every step you need a different skill set. So that's also another part. Um, and it's not quick. You know, the man-made fiber is quicker. You can have this thing right away. You can custom it. You can, uh, let's say, uh, you need a engineered fiber. Engineered fiber means, let's say, you are looking for a hollow fiber. You know, you in the fiber inside, you have a hollow uh, space, and that gives you extra level of insulation property. You can do it in the engineered fiber, like the man-made fiber. You cannot do it in the uh, natural fiber. Uh, so this kind of, you know, all this variability, these are the important aspect. And also in the manufacturing stage, these are quick, you know, you don't have to do the redo like there, you know, sometimes for natural fiber, there are a lot to lot variation. Let's say half of the season, there is a one sort of weather and then there is another sort of weather that makes a mixed uh, species or mixed kind of a fiber there. And it, it is really hard to deal with this the, for the for the manufacturer. So basically they have to go through all this trial and error and sampling process. So on one hand, we mainly use natural fibers, such as cotton, wool, and silk. These take longer to produce and are subject to many more hurdles pertaining to the weather, seasonal variations, and so forth. On the other hand, we have synthetic fibers, polyester, rayon, and nylon, that are faster to produce and therefore more efficient manufacturing-wise and more profitable. But what about the environmental impact? When we think of cotton, we may think of a very popular factoid where 20,000 gallons of water are needed to make a single kilogram of cotton. To put this into perspective, this is equivalent to 810 minute showers or filling 500 bathtubs. Isn't this very bad for the environment? Dr. Preeti Arya wants to correct this misconception about cotton. If cotton is using that much amount of uh, or that much volume of water that you are specifying, 
it is going into the plant it's going to the soil and then whatever is not being consumed is getting evaporated and coming back to the streams and lakes okay it's not that cotton cotton is consuming that much of moisture and it's getting swollen and the lakes and rivers and oceans are drying no that's not happening it's in the ecosystem so irrigation may require just hypothetically even if it's requiring that much volume of water it's still coming back to our earth so it's not going escaping it's not going anywhere but that's not all what about the health effects cotton comes from a plant it is therefore naturally occurring the same cannot be said for polyester cotton is a fiber which is made out of 95% at least cellulose even if i eat it i will not die that is the type of cellulose that my body can process and i'll still be okay should i be eating it no it's the fruit of a plant i can and i won't die so the microfibers of uh, cotton will not kill me but the micro uh, fibers of polyester or nylon or polyethylene or polypropylene or any other petroleum polymer if not expelled out of my system will and can create a tumor will and can uh create a defective fetus in the body of a female or any any individual why take the chance are we willing to take that chance i rather have cotton drink that much volume of water which will still be returned to the planet and i still can eat that fiber and the fiber is still biodegradable rather than go go with petroleum polymers which are not biodegradable not been proved at least but there is one thing for sure is that any microplastic from polyester those are carcinogenic so why has this conception been perpetuated for so long and so widely who benefits when cotton is portrayed negatively this is what dr arya thinks the way cotton has been portrayed poorly by its rivals or competitors is um is also part of lobbying again uh and the 70 years of damage that the petroleum polymers have done is 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 the reason that we don't have uh winter this year at all focusing on polyester though which seems easier faster and more profitable to make and doesn't require the usage of so much water why then has it been touted as a sustainable solution a sustainable alternative in fact some brands have been advertising their usage of recycled polyester is this a meaningful step towards increasing sustainability within the fast fashion industry dr arya and dr islam correct this misconception too none of the companies which are claiming that it's made out of recycled pet they are not giving any certification for us to be satisfied who is doing the vetting who is doing the validation i don't see the third party agencies or any government agencies saying that it has been recycled this is this certified gos certified or blue science certified or any xyz agency certified i don't see that the scientists are still at a very developmental stage very nascent stage where they are still trying to figure out which is a better way of recycling there has been literature don't get me wrong they have done research and they have succeeded but when it we, when it comes to upscaling the only process that has been successful is the chemical way of recycling polyester 
and of which whatever metric tons of uh, plastic waste that is produced whether it's pet or whether it's nylon maybe 1 2 or 5% get recycled not all of it that is not even the a scratch a dent in that entire mass and that does not produce 0.07% just okay a- thank you see he, he's very good with numbers so that is that is really bad and we need to speed up can we speed up probably not do we have the infrastructure to speed up probably not some countries like sweden they have started the process maybe china but we still don't have the way we have manufacturing units we don't have recycling units and also the process has not been vetted the process is still it's in a limbo there are still question marks so we don't know yet a lot of things people think oh they can melt plastic no that does not work if that was so easy we would have melted everything and kenya would not be flooded with all that plastic right now in terms of the recycled plastic um, so let's say you have some sort of plastic and you you recycle them basically they collect this pet bottle and they they extrude the thin fiber or let's say long continuous yarn out of it and then they reuse for the for the textile material now what next can you do it again probably not do you understand what i mean so that's one of the thing and again the percentage as a recycled plastic uh, i feel like you know from all along like it's kind of a hype you know we we it sounds good we feel good okay there is a recycled plastic but if we think about the the actually how what is the percentage and how much we are basically recycling and so then you if you see, see the the bigger picture it's not there it's not even a not even something to mention it's so so little furthermore what is regulating companies who do label their clothing as recycled is there an agency that approves these recycling processes or the usage of this label here's dr arya who argues that not only is this not the case but also that companies are actually cheat recycling there have been even and i'm not going to we cannot endorse any uh, brand or any company so i'm just going to say that there have been companies or at least one company that i know of had their manufacturing unit for uh, the petroleum polymer and the filament extrusion of the filament it's it, the polymer gets molten melted and then it's being extruded if we have to recycle it over and over again the crystallinity gets impacted terribly and so does the uh, durability and performance so so one of the at least one of the uh, brands that claim to be the recycling of petroleum or pl- uh, polyester they had their water bottle unit next to their um yarn manufacturing company uh, mill so they are making fresh pet bottles shredding it melting it and again using it for extrusion of the synthetic uh, filament i mean that is cheating that is not recycling and selling it ex- in a more expensive price or cost in the name of recycling that is misleading that is extortion so we should not be doing that unless and until vetted by an uh, a renowned agency we cannot accept or believe in these claims we should not clearly there are a lot of problems here first the use of petroleum based products are not sustainable 
despite the polyester-using companies claiming otherwise. Petroleum-based products are not biodegradable, as is the case with natural fibers such as cotton, and are, in fact, carcinogenic. Clearly, industry is not doing enough to mitigate the environmental and health effects of fast fashion. What do Dr. Arya and Dr. Islam think the industry should do then? Well, one interest of Dr. Arya's is to determine the utility of an additional label attached to clothing garments that detail manufacturing information, information that essentially goes beyond the current care instructions, fiber content, and the country of origin. So um, right now, if you'll see the clothing labels generally have an RN number, the, the origin of the country, and the fiber content. The entire booklet is on the side with, I don't know, 10, 15 different languages, how to take care of it. But uh, care label is good, but we also want to know the, uh, the consumer is becoming more and more aware. And we would also like to know how much a carbon footprint has this product manufacturer created or um, if this is if this manufacturer or the brand has followed the labor laws properly were the labor paid well and all these issues like uh, how many days it was uh, manufactured in and uh, how many greenhouse gases were released or produced so these kind of information People won't want to shy away from it because nobody wants to get involved in such tedious matters. And this can put make them um, liable to a lot of legalities and questions and uh, nobody wants to get involved. So escapism is the best policy. But now it's time that we start holding um, or create some a product in the form of a label where we can actually cover the entire supply chain in the manufacturing and uh, hold a lot of people responsible and accountable. This all sounds great, but there is likely to be very little incentive to reveal this information because consumers will likely be deterred when they realize the significant carbon footprint of the garment that they are thinking of purchasing. How then do we make this a reality? The key players, both from academia, industries, and also government agencies or government itself, will have to sit down and will have to brainstorm and agree upon something that is achievable and that is beneficial to um, the manufacturer, the consumers, the planet, and everybody. So there is more transparency right now. Just saying the country of origin, the fiber content, um, the manufacturing unit's number is not helpful. Uh, what do I do by knowing the manufacturer unit's number? Okay, it will be helpful for maybe the retailer, maybe for the manufacturer, but it's not helping the consumer. The consumer will know what they are paying for is, is by all the things that I discussed earlier. Uh, so it's it's time that the key players, we sit down and we talk about it. Dr. Islam gives me an example to better understand. Ali, I'd like to give you an example so that you understand also. Let's say the dress you are wearing right now. So that's produced by manufacturer A, okay? There is manufacturer B produced the same dress but with less carbon footprint. But in order to do that, you have to pay, let's say, $2 more or $5 more. Do you understand what I mean? But how... How, as a consumer, you know this thing? Like, which one is producing this thing with less carbon footprint or they have a greener manufacturing unit or something? So, basically, Pretty is looking for that kind of information so that consumer can get be informed. So, it depends 
it so you know to do that all the stakeholders they have to have the transparency and the traceability I then go on to suggest how the FDA and EPA could combine in some way to make a new agency that focuses on the textile industry and related realms. Turning to the government's role, Dr. Islam and Dr. Arya say this about what the government should do. EPA is a is a wonderful uh, agency to incorporate like you know in this particular process definitely they have they can take a vital role uh to to address like to to enhance the 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 sustainability or transparency for the whole supply chain so yes all these government government agency we have a another called otexa office of textile and apparel the, which is a federal office and they basically take care of all the exports and imports uh, but also they can put a cap on or they can okay you only con- one condition you can export or import based on like who are taking care of the environment as well so like putting additional um barrier it's not barrier like you know just one more steps so that manufacturer has to do that again as i even i mentioned barrier do you understand what i mean this is how everyone looks uh, so this is this is not a barrier this is a necessary steps for the for the future generation for the upcoming generation for the greener world so uh even i mentioned barrier it's not a barrier it's a necessary steps so if we think like that it will be a good thing <laughs> However, what they have found is that they have to initiate such conversations with government officials themselves. They are often unsuccessful when trying to advocate for these issues because the textile industry doesn't receive as much information as other key issues in the US. This is why Dr. Islam is so pessimistic about making policy advances in the textile industry. I see myself as a pessimistic one in a sense that we have bigger problem like gun control, you know. <laughs> so i mean that that's most immediate thing and we are still struggling with this one and then if you compare that against this textile material uh it should be it will take longer time than that we expect this is one of the place where i i see myself as a very optimistic in every aspect except this particular thing so not only is there a lack of political capital and drive to fix this issue but dr islam and dr arya also see much pushback from lobbyists and companies as they have mentioned already Why then does this pushback exist and what does it actually look like? What are the barriers that companies face when trying to make a push to be more sustainable? Our next guest, former COO of Timberland and fashion sustainability and investing expert Ken Pucker, explains the problems with expecting the industry to change on its own. Stay tuned for our next episode in our fast fashion series.